0: take our Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 6 this morning. We're going to read verses 45 through 56. Last week we saw one of the most important miracles in the New Testament. It's one of the most important because all of the gospel writers tell us about the feeding of the 5,000. The only other miracle that all of the writers record is the resurrection itself, and so it is essential. And in fact, what Jesus was doing was creating a miracle that taught a lesson about his identity. But also, you remember that he was teaching his disciples the the essential nature of feeding the flock of God on his word. Now, as Jesus sends his disciples out onto the Sea of Galilee, he sends them, quite deliberately, into a storm. And he does that so that they might grow in their faith. And so we pick up at Mark chapter 6, verse 45, and I'll remind you, What I'm about to read is God's Word. It's the only infallible rule of faith and practice. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplace and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. This is God's word. Let's pray for his help. Holy Father, we recognize that what we have read is not simply words on a page, but it is your word given to your people. And so we grab hold of the promise that you made, that you would send forth your word and that word would not ever return void. We pray that you would accomplish the good that you intend to do through it. And God, I ask once again... That you would give us ears to hear, even while you use a wretched, sinful, crooked stick like me to point the narrow way to Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Lots of pastors, when they look at this passage, come to the same conclusion that amazement and faith are not the same thing. If you've ever been to a county fair, to a state fair, You know exactly what I'm talking about. Somehow they have this little ride that's like a slingshot. And they put you into a cage, somehow buckling you in there. And with a giant rubber band suspended to two poles, they pull back on those forks. And then they release the tension like you're a rock in a kid's toy. And then when that tension releases, you go flying in the air, and you bounce, and you bounce, and that is amazing. But I will not be a part of that. I do not have any faith in that contraption. Here's the other amazing part, really. If you get there on a Friday afternoon, you realize that probably 90 minutes earlier, that little slingshot ride was on the back of a semi-truck going 70 miles an hour down the interstate. It's also quite amazing. And then over there, you see the pop-up roller coaster and the pop-up Ferris wheel, and they've all been set up in the last 90 minutes, and it's amazing. And I do not have the faith to ride any of them. Now, a passage before us displays the exact same fact that amazement and faith are not at all the same thing. The disciples are really amazed that Jesus walks on water, but they don't have the faith, at least not yet, truly in him. You might be amazed at something that happens in an instant, but faith often takes time to grow. In, in fact, it's always a process. It's a journey, really, more than a destination. And that's what you see in the disciples. You also see it in the crowds. In fact, except for Jesus, everyone in this passage is really somewhere in process, which if you recognize your own weaknesses, your own failures of faith, can actually be something encouraging. The truth is, most of us are further along than any of them. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you already have saving faith. But there's more to to faith, than just simply being saved from your sins. In fact, genuine trust in the Lord is meant to be an all-of-life-encompassing, slow process of, of growth. I suspect some of you might even be here today disappointed, discouraged by your own inconsistency as a believer. Or maybe you look at the growth that you possess in your own life and you're a little bit discouraged that this has been so slow and that you're not further along than you should have been. You maybe even look at your life and think, well, shouldn't my faith provide me more day-to-day stability? Shouldn't I really know what it means to repent and from repentance to see genuine change in my own life? If you've ever looked at your faith... And seen and known that it was somewhat lacking, you can take heart with a passage like this. The Bible simply says here, wait patiently as the Lord grows faith in you. Now, from this text, we're going to get three points this morning. Amazing how that always happens. We're going to look at the grace of refinement, the grace of his presence, and then thirdly, the grace of faith. The grace of refinement. Now Mark doesn't tell us anything about what the crowd of 5,000 knew. He doesn't tell us that they knew that he had done a miracle. It does tell us that the disciples were aware of it. But verse 52 says they didn't even understand the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. But scholars who study this particular region tell us that the spot where Jesus stopped and fed 5,000 men was a hotbed of insurrection activity against the Roman authorities. In fact, when John tells this story in his gospel, he adds this. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. And perceiving that they were about to seize him and make him by force become king, Jesus withdrew to the mountain by himself. They wanted a military messiah. They wanted a king to overthrow the Romans. That's not his mission, which is why Jesus breaks up the gathering. Mark's favorite word, look at verse 45. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd, and after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray one of the fascinating patterns you see in Mark's gospel, that every time that Jesus is said to withdraw to pray, it is because he faces a moment of great temptation. It's a great temptation to be a Messiah who's praised by men rather than to be the Christ of God's salvation. If you remember Back at Capernaum, Mark chapter 1, Jesus had a very successful day of ministry. And on the heels of all that success, he withdraws to pray. Here again, Mark 6, he withdraws to pray after the miracle. The next time we see Jesus withdraw to pray is in the Garden of Gethsemane, Mark chapter 14. Following the last supper, there's another flurry of excitement from the crowds, a temptation to ride the wave of human accolades and to thereby avoid the cross. These retreats, incidentally, always occur at night, and they're always under a renewed temptation to take glory now, to spare himself the suffering of the cross. So is that just kind of an interesting side note? Not hardly. You see, every time Jesus steps away in prayer, he lays aside the temporal glory and the power, and he says again, yes, Lord, I will be the servant who obeys you perfectly. I will be the son who suffers passively to pay for the sins of your people. You and I love the praise of men, and Jesus rejects it constantly. Why? So that he can be the obedient son that you've never been, so that he can be your savior. And so, if you look at your own faith and you're a little bit tired and maybe discouraged by it, I would encourage you not to leave this passage without noticing Jesus. While you sit in this posture, a spot of disobedience, would you look at Christ who sits in the seat of perfect obedience? And don't just be amazed. Believe upon him. Put your faith wholly in this obedient Christ. Now, let's transition. Where are the disciples? Verse 47. Evening came, the boat was out on the sea. He was alone on the land, and he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. Did you notice what was so subtle there? Jesus sent his own disciples onto the sea, knowing that he was sending them into a storm. He knew they would be exhausted. He knew they would be scared against pushing waves and wind. Paul Tripp said it this way. The disciples are in this situation not because they have been disobedient, but because they have been obedient. In fact, they're doing exactly what Jesus told them to do. And in that moment, it feels like they're pushing against futility. It feels like they're going nowhere You see, friends, this is the grace of refinement. Here's a lesson to anyone who wants to be a disciple of Jesus. And it is this, because the Lord loves you, there will be moments in life where he pushes you out beyond your own strength out beyond your own level of comfort, out beyond the resources that you believe you have within yourself so that you will learn to trust Him in the spaces where you lack. Jesus didn't send His disciples into the storm just to toy with them. He doesn't do that with you either. I wonder if you could look and recognize that He's actually growing you in faith, and it's a process. Some of you may be experiencing... This grace of refinement today. Maybe you're in a a spot of futility, and you feel stuck, and you and you feel tired. And when you're in those places, you would probably much prefer that Jesus would meet you with a different kind of grace. No, Lord, not refinement. Maybe you would meet me with the grace of relief or the grace of refreshment, but instead you're actually sitting in the grace of refinement. What do you do in times like that? How do you respond when you've obeyed the Lord, when you strive to do what he commands, and yet by his own command, by his own providence, he sends you into a proverbial storm? And then what do you do when it feels like you're not making any progress and you feel stuck and you're beginning to feel exhausted because every direction that you move or push feels like a headwind? Maybe you could think about it this way. What would you say if you were going to counsel the disciples in the boat at 3 a.m.? Would you remind them, hey, guys, look, there's Jesus up on the hill and he's praying on your behalf even now? Would it help you to say to them, do you notice that he sees you down here in the water? You really are obeying him. You did what he told you to do. Would you say to them, hey guys, this is another kind of grace. You're a child that he loves. And this may be not what you would choose for yourself, but it's what he has chosen for you. It's the very grace he knew that you all needed. He loves you so much that he is refining your faith by grace. And if you can relate to the predicament that the disciples find themselves in, would you be able to turn it then and apply your advice to them back on yourself? In other words, could you speak truth to yourself when you are in the midst of the grace of refinement? Number one, that Jesus is also praying for you. Hebrews 7.25 promises that Jesus constantly lives to make intercession for you. Number two, that Jesus really does see you. And not only does he see you, Ephesians 1.4 promises that you were chosen in him to become holy and blameless. That's actually what God is doing in you right now. And so, brothers and sisters, wait upon him, trust him, obey him. Because he loves you, he's refining your faith. It's another kind of grace. Wait patiently as the Lord grows faith in you. So we've seen the grace of refinement. Now we're going to look at the grace of his presence. Verse 48 looks at first like a contradiction. Look at it. Jesus saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass them by. See, Jesus came to his disciples precisely because he saw that they were in trouble. So then why does the text say he meant to pass them by? Did Jesus just mean to keep walking? No. No, this is, in fact, the precise Language of an Old Testament theophany. It's the precise language of the ways that God appears to his people in the Old Testament. He appears to his people as one who is majestic and transcendent in his glory, and it's always seen in a fleeting way, as if he's passing by. Remember Mount Sinai? Do you remember Moses, Lord? If I found favor in your sight, I want to know your ways. I want to know your presence. I want to know that you're truly with your people. And God says in Exodus thirty-three nineteen, "I will make all my goodness pass before you, and then while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of a rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by." And then I will take away my hand and you will see a fleeting glimpse of my back, but my face will not be seen. Or if you remember Elijah on Mount Horeb, 1 Kings 19.11, the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind tore the mountain. In fact, the reason I chose Job 9 this morning for our Old Testament lesson, for our confession of sin is because the text speaks of God as one who, who walks on the waves of the sea. And Job says it like this, if he goes by me, I, I will not see him. If he passes by me, I will not recognize him. You see, Mark's point is is while the disciples struggled against the wind around 3 a.m., Jesus strolled upon them on the waters like Yahweh himself, who passes by in glory. Make no mistake, Jesus did not intend to keep going. He intended to be seen for who he truly is. This is the God of Job 9 who stretched out the heavens and tramples the waves under his feet. Verse 49, When they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost. They cried out, and they all saw him and were terrified. And you see, because they keep missing the hints, Jesus continues to use an Old Testament pattern of revealing himself. Take heart, it is I. Mark puts all of the emphasis on the word I, like I am, in order to remind his disciples Of God who spoke to Moses in Exodus 3, I am who I am. And then Jesus follows that declaration of his divinity by saying, Do not be afraid, which is an identical way in which he speaks through the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 41, fear not, I am your help. Isaiah 43, fear not, for I have redeemed you. Isaiah 44, Isaiah 51, fear not. Look at Mark chapter 6, verse 51. Jesus got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. They were astounded. They were all amazed. And yet in the moment, none of them had faith. What is it about the loaves that they did not yet understand? You see, Jesus was revealing in that miracle who he is. In fact, he was revealing the essence of his being. Sinclair Ferguson points out that earlier in the day, he had shown himself to be the shepherd of his people, and they should have known that he would not abandon them now in the midst of their trouble. This is actually where the rubber meets the road in your own life. It is not enough that you would know that Jesus is God, that he is powerful, that he's good, that he's loving and capable. The invitation by knowing who he is is that you and I would learn to rest in this. His presence is always with you, and that should change everything. You're never alone. You're never by yourself. You're never lost. Early church history tells us that the Christians who were going to be sent to a martyr's death saw this particular passage as a pledge of Christ's aid. And it provided them assurance, yes, I may be put to death today and Christ is with me as I die. I wonder how Peter, or he standing here, would preach this sermon to you and me what he say you need to see him better than we did like to be amazed at what jesus can do is not the same as believing upon him for salvation It's not the same for trusting him for your daily needs. Jesus had been showing us who he was for a long time. We'd watched him calm the raging sea. We watched him raise Jairus' daughter from the dead. We watched him feed 5,000 hungry men on three loaves of bread. And then, in majesty, the water pouring into our boat, we watched Jesus stroll across the water and climb in the boat with us. And we missed who He is. What a comfort for you, for you to recognize that your faith is an ongoing work, that it's a process And if you belong to Christ, this is a lesson in another kind of grace that is meant to buoy your heart. It is the grace of his presence. So that when storms surround you, when whatever is out there beyond your sight seems uncertain and unknown, when you don't know actually which way you are drifting, you have something greater than the disciples had. Really? I mean, they they actually had Jesus in their boat. Yes. Yes. You have Jesus in your heart, the very God who in the Old Testament would merely allow his goodness to pass by, the God who tramples the waves under his feet and calms them, who stretched out the heavens and says, I am the great I am, has chosen by his Holy Spirit to dwell within your heart. And it is that God who said to them, as he says to you, fear not, I am with you. And so, friends, if you were going through a grace of refinement right now, you must never lose sight of this promise. If you belong to Jesus Christ, you always have the grace of his presence. You have it in the quiet moments of the night. You have the grace of his presence in moments when you feel alone or when you feel harassed by the evil one. When you wonder whether the weak faith that you seem to exhibit is going to be able to sustain you. I would remind you that none of you are sustained or none of you hold on to Jesus by the amount of faith that you feel. But by the object of the faith in whom you trust. And so when that still, small voice speaks to your thoughts as conviction and you know that this is a moment that you should stop and and pray, or, or maybe it's a moment that you need to read a psalm in the midst of temptation. When you feel weak in every way, remember the grace of God's presence. So the same Christ who sent his own disciples into the storm was with them in the storm, and he allowed them to struggle for a time, for a moment, in order to show himself mighty. So would you then wait patiently as the Lord grows faith in you? We've seen the grace of refinement, the grace of his presence. We're going to close with the grace of faith. Jesus asked his disciples to row northeast towards Bethsaida. Chapter 6 ends in a totally different spot. They went southwest. Clearly, the Lord wanted his disciples to struggle for a time against the conditions so that he could reveal himself in their need. And then you pick up at verse 53 and you go, I think this might be an unnecessary Cliff Notes comment just to close out the chapter. But there is really more here than meets the eye. The boat lands in a densely populated spot. It's actually not far from where Jesus healed that paralyzed man who was lowered down through the roof in Mark chapter 2, which is why the crowd greets him full of expectations, verse 56. Wherever he came, in villages, cities, countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplace and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. Now, in a fallen world, prior to what we think of as modern medical care, the physical needs are always plentiful and they're always severe. But you notice, don't you, that the compassion of Jesus seems to match that. But you notice also In a strange way, there's actually no mention of Jesus preaching or teaching here. Why is that? Doesn't he care that these people would come to saving faith in him? That's not it. Rather, it is that the crowds exemplify those who seek Jesus not for who he is, but just for what he can do. And so on one hand, you have these disciples who are amazed at what Jesus can do, but they don't yet have faith to understand who he truly is. And then on the other hand, you have these crowds who believe that Jesus can heal, and in in fact, it seems to be that their faith is the instrument that Christ uses to make them well, but their faith is a faith that seeks too little. And I can't help but wonder if that's not where some of you find yourself today. Not that you would want too much from Jesus But that you would settle for too little? Like the crowds just want to be healed. But wouldn't this be the Jesus who would give them so much more than that? Wouldn't he be willing to forgive their sins and free them from slavery? Would he not be willing to give them assurance of God's love and peace of conscience and and some joy in their life through the Holy Spirit? Would he not be a a, a Christ who would increase grace to them again and again and help them persevere through the storms of life? Is he not willing to give them a lifelong support and access through prayer to the true shepherd who really does hear their cries for help? Nah, we'll just take a healing. I wonder if some of you are not totally content with where your faith is in Jesus. You may have marked it off to some quiet, private, unspoken quadrant of your life, and there you chain up your faith as if it is nothing more than a vague, ethereal concept. And while you might be content with faith in Christ as nothing more than a distant hope that at some point everything really is going to turn out okay and I'm not going to burn in hell... Somewhere deep down. You wish that your faith was something more, don't you? And you can sense that it is lacking. I would suggest that the problem is not that you want too much from Jesus, but that you have settled for way too little. What Jesus offers to the disciples and to the crowds and to you is the grace of faith. And what I mean is that Jesus offers not only to implant this gift of grace into your heart so that you might know him, but he never meant it to be contained. It was always intended to be ever-growing, ever-reaching into new spaces of your heart. And so what you have done, perhaps, is, is chain a roaring lion Your faith was was given to you by God, and it was meant to roam into every territory of your soul and your being. It was made to to go and attack your fears. It was made to attack the evil one. Your faith was meant to, to, to devour the lies of Satan, which haunt you. You must give in to temptation. You are unlovable. You are already unacceptable. You are already unforgivable. Just keep doing the garbage that you're doing. It's fine. When God gave you saving faith, friends, he planted nothing less than the lion of the tribe of Judah directly into your heart. And that lion was meant to roam majestic and free through your entire being so that he would bring peace into every sphere of this life and the next. Do not do what the crowds did and isolate your faith into one little area of of need. You must let him loose. And I am not speaking mystically as if there's some secret higher power All I simply mean is that you would learn to apply the gospel of Christ to every area of your being, not just to the end of your life, but to your everyday struggles and pressures, your everyday temptations and fears and storms, everyday needs and everyday longings. In fact, what question mark is is sitting on the horizon of your future that is not surely already completely answered by the cross of Christ? it be that so many of us know so little of this kind of faith, because like the disciples in these early days, we know so little about the character of the Lord Jesus. He's a tender shepherd who looks with compassion upon his sheep. He's the mighty God who stretched out the heavens and, and tramples the waves under his feet. This is the eternal one who's nothing less than the great I am, who says, fear not, I am with you. He's the God who heals all of your sickness of heart and soul. But friends, he's also the God who is not content to let your faith lie stagnant. And so, brothers and sisters, press on and wait patiently as the Lord grows you faith but do not give up for here is something profound planted within your soul let's pray